Our reading today is from John 5, 1 through 17. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But when he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. It's a joy to be here worshiping again with you this morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas weekend and New Year's Eve night. It's good to see the room full of people not still sleeping because you stayed up too late. Let's pray and ask those words that we just sang, that God would speak and give us life. God, you sent the Lord Jesus, to be your word made flesh, to speak into our lives in order to make us whole. Speak now, just as you did when you said, let there be light and there was light. Just as you commanded the little girl to rise and she did, command our hearts to come to life, that we may walk in faithful obedience and our lives a testimony to the power of Christ. Amen. Nick Vujicic is a man who has endured 40 years of life without arms or legs. He was born with no limbs. Throughout his childhood, he was painfully aware of his disability. His parents loved him very much and tried to give him as many opportunities as possible to enjoy some kind of life. But when he was in school, it was obvious how different and limited he was. Kids made terrible fun of him. He thought he would never be able to enjoy any of the things that normal kids do. He felt assured that he would never have a family of his own. He begged God regularly to heal him. I can't imagine how many times he prayed at night that God would wake him up with arms and legs only to open his eyes the next morning, utterly disappointed. 
One day, 10-year-old Nick, his despair got so bad that his mom put him in the bathtub and he determined to drown himself. He flopped over onto his belly and buried his head in six inches of water praying he would die. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do that to his parents who loved him so much, so he determined to just eke out a life of impossibility. So what would it look like for Nick to be healed? To just have some arms and legs? Would he be happier with arms and legs? You all have arms and legs. Are you happy? Why would God make him like this and keep him like this for so long? Well, Nick had to learn that being healed involves so much more than just having your immediate problems solved, even if they are big problems like not having arms and legs. You remember why John wrote this gospel. He told us that he wants us to believe in Jesus so that we would have life in him, even without arms and legs. This is what the story of this healing in John chapter 5 is about. How we can find wholeness in Christ, the Lord of a new creation. The question then is, what does it mean to actually be whole? How do you become whole? What is God's plan to make us whole? So with those questions in mind, we're going to seek answers in this text. In verses 1 through 9, we have a first section that shows us what the longing for wholeness looks like. We all want to be whole, and John gives us an example of someone who represents our de desperate need that only God can provide for. And then in the following verses, he reveals to us the Lord of wholeness. Jesus, the Lord of creation, alone has the ability to make you whole. Now, before we dive into this text, it's been what, like six weeks since we've actually been in the Gospel of John. We were trudging through pretty regularly and took a break for Advent. So let's just have a refresher of where we've come from. Remember the whole point of the Gospel of John. He writes to us in chapter 20, verse 31. The reason he wrote these stories in particular was so that you would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's his purpose. And so when he begins the Gospel, he paints a picture of Jesus coming and starting a new creation. And he calls some disciples around him as the offspring of a brand new humanity. And then in chapter 2, he does this turning water into wine and cleansing the temple as pictures of putting away with the old and starting with a new, a new creation, new covenants. And then in chapter 3, he addresses Nicodemus saying that this creation is under condemnation. But if you want to be part of that new creation, you must be born from above, born again of God's spirit. And then he has this amazing encounter with a woman at the well in chapter 4, showing how Jesus himself is the source of living water, the source of life for new creation humanity. And then John tells us about some healings that happen at the end of chapter 4 and now in chapter 5 to show us, to display that Jesus is the creator of life. This is exactly what Jesus seeks to proclaim by healing this man in these first nine verses, a man longing for wholeness. 
So let's let the word proclaim God's truth again to us again. Let's read verses 1 through 9 together. After this, John writes, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. He walked. So John tells us in various ways in these first three verses that there are a lot of people present in this scene. He mentions it's in Jerusalem, the capital city. That's where there's tons of people. And it's during a feast day, like Passover, when people came from all over the land to gather in Jerusalem for worship. And he tells us specifically in verse 2, they're at a pool called Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. That's just on the north side of the Temple Mount. This is where the shepherds would bring their sheep in from the fields and prepare them, get them ready for market to be sold so people could take them up for sacrifice. They're at a pool where worshipers would come first and wash and prepare themselves ritually to go into the presence of God with their sacrifice for worship. Some people even thought, as the footnote in your Bible might mention, that these waters had some special healing properties, that somehow an angel would stir up the water and the first person in would have their ailments healed. That all these things are drawing people into this area. Even the five-roofed colonnades is just a way of saying this place was meant to hold a lot of people. Just the right context for Jesus to make a statement, a big announcement. But then verses three to, five, three to five show us that Jesus didn't go to the most important people to make his announcement. He didn't go to the temple with the priests. He didn't go to the palace to talk to the king. He went to where all the regular people were, where the outcasts could be found, where the hurting people are. He's, he's trying to bring people out of their wilderness of suffering and darkness. John tells us that this pool was dark. It had a multitude of people suffering so many terrible disabilities. They were blind, lame, paralyzed. They thought they might be able to get some healing here. These are people who had no way of providing for themselves. You can't farm if you can't see. You can't, you can't start a business if you can't walk. They had no way and nobody to help provide for them. They were poor. But among them is one man in particular that Jesus seeks out. And we're not given his name. His name's not so important. What's important is what he represents. He's been suffering for 38 years. That's longer than probably 75% of you in this room have been alive. That's a long time. This man represents everything broken about ourselves. 
stuck, wandering in the wilderness with no hope to ever arrive home. In fact, this verse, these 38 years are more than just this man's suffering. They represent wilderness wandering. The only other place in the Bible you see a reference to 38 years is in Deuteronomy chapter 2. When Moses finally brings the people towards the end of their wandering. And he's turning them towards Jerusalem. And reminding them, we have been wandering for 38 years through the wilderness because of your sin. It is judgment on us. They turned to all kinds of gods to try to escape. They rebelled against God's leadership. They complained about his provision. They were punished for 38 years because of their lack of trust. But God was bringing a new generation out of the unfaithful ones to enter into the promised land. And we see a similar thing happening here in John 5. Multitudes of people suffering for many different reasons. Some due to their own sin, some probably due to others' sin. They're under the oppression of their Roman neighbors. They have false hopes going to a pool to find healing instead of looking to God. But John's been telling us Jesus came to lead people out of the wilderness of this world into the promised land of a new creation. But we need more than just being picked up out of one place and put in another place. In order to be there, we need to be made whole. Verses 6 to 9 really get to the heart of the problem. Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? That word for healed is more than just physical healing. It means whole. It's used five times in just one story. We all want to be healed. We need to be whole. And John is showing us where to find that healing. But we need to understand what kind of healing it is we really need. We live in a city that has a big focus on healing, right? Mayo Clinic is the dominant voice in our city. And millions of people come here from around the world every single year to find healing. But what Mayo offers is just a small taste, temporary taste even, of true wholeness. In fact, the more you focus just on physical healing... Make that a priority, the more it seems to choke out all the other kinds of wholeness that we need in our lives. Even this trend of holistic medicine, it gets us a little closer, but it still falls short of true wholeness. True wholeness also involves healthy relationships. Notice what the man says in verse 7, I have no one. There's nobody there to help him. Part of his brokenness is the lack of a family and a social network to take care of him. Today, one of the biggest indicators of poverty or crime is a person's lack of a married mother and father and a healthy social network. Without those things, it's impossible to be whole. Not one of the people in this man's life, none of the other people at the pool over 38 years said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to hold off on this one, and we're going to help you get in first. Not once. 
This is why hospitality is so vital to our witness of building up families and becoming a church family together and then opening our homes to others because there are so many people suffering because they have nobody to call upon or no place to call home. And you could be the answer of Christ to them, the family of Christ to them. The thing that ties all of this wholeness together at the root of it is spiritual wholeness. Seeing that God is the fountain of all life. And sin is therefore rejection of God. To turn against God. To say, I don't need you. Which obviously, if he's the source of life, will inevitably lead to your demise. The man suggests in verse 7 that he went to the pool pursuing his unbiblical belief that he could find healing in the water. But he wasn't going to the right place. He thinks if I just had a friend who could move me from this place to another place, then I would be whole. But if he wants true wholeness, He doesn't need just a new earthly friend or a new earthly location. He needs a new relationship with God. But this paralyzed man knows deep down that his healing is going to require major work. The answer to Jesus' question, do you want to be healed, is obvious. He doesn't have to really say it. His life is just such a mess. 38 years of brokenness is a lot to overcome. I know some of you have dealt with addictions for like 25 years in your life. And you thought, I would never escape that. 38 years. So his response to Jesus is essentially, of course I want to be healed. But why does that even matter? Because the way I see it, it's utterly impossible anyway. Only a recreation of my entire life at the hand of God could make me whole. And this is why Jesus chose this man out of all the people in the crowd. He picked the guy worst off among all of them in a populated place where everyone was looking the wrong direction so that it would be obvious that it is the power and authority of God creating life in their midst. All of the baggage of this man's life, all of the tension and excitement of the crowds on that day come to a climax right in this moment. Jesus looks the man in the eye and he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. That's it. There's no dramatic show. There's no picking him up and carrying him to the pool. The guy doesn't need to go to physical therapy for a few weeks to learn to build strength in his legs or take some classes at the community ed center to learn appropriate walking in Jewish society. Jesus doesn't even touch him. He just speaks a command. Speak, O Lord. And just as God said, let there be light and there was light, he says, get up and walk. And the guy gets up, picks up his bed, and walks. The healing he needed was being remade for a new creation. The relationship he needed was to be with Jesus, the only one who can satisfy your longing for wholeness. And with that short but powerful healing... 
Jesus just turned the whole city upside down, declaring himself boldly as the Lord of wholeness. The point of this story is not simply that Jesus has compassion on hurting people. We know that's true. There's so many stories of Jesus showing compassion. Remember, there were multitudes of people at the pool, and he only healed one. The point of this story is to declare Jesus' identity as the Lord of wholeness, the Lord of a new creation. And if you wish to be made whole, you want your life to be made whole, then you need to surrender to him as Lord and be made to walk by his designs. So let's look again at verses 10 to 17 and see Jesus' identity become more clear in his conflict with these religious leaders. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, man who healed me. That, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So John doesn't continue this story following this man who's been healed, walking now in wholeness. Instead, he turns our attention towards these Jewish leaders who are still wandering in the wilderness, clinging to their sin. They continue to be the rebellious generation that will die off while everyone else walks into the promised land. Notice at the end of verse 9, John points out that the healing was done on the Sabbath. He's pointing out that the conflict of this story is not that there was a sick guy, a lame man who needed some healing. The true conflict of this story is that through that healing, Jesus is proclaiming himself authority over all of Israel. That's an authority only God has. The Jews, in their own assumed authority, make their own assertion to this healed man that according to the law, he should not be carrying his mat, his bed, on the Sabbath. Is that an accurate description of what the law says? The fourth commandment in Exodus 20 says to honor the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy by not working on it. And then a few chapters later, it describes the punishment for breaking the Sabbath. It's pretty harsh. It's death. So since this punishment is so serious, we better figure out what it means to work and not work on the Sabbath. Jeremiah offers a, a tiny bit of insight. He says in chapter 17, verse 21, not to bear a burden on the Sabbath. Okay, that doesn't offer a whole lot of clarity. You know, due to our naturally legalistic tendencies, our hearts just, we think that if God just was clear to us, if he just gave us a list, then we would be able to obey, right? Just tell me, God, what you want me to do. Oh, here's the list. All that you have spoken, I will do. And it never works out that way. 
And the, the Jewish people, they had been in exile for a couple of generations. They saw the punishment for disobeying this law. They wanted some clarity. And so at one point, the rabbis kind of got together, the guys who knew their Bibles well, and they said, I know we need some clarity on this. Let's come up with a list. So they taught, as recorded in the Mishnah, uh, that there were certain things, a list of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of them was picking up an object and carrying it to a new place. That's it. If I picked up that speaker and set it over here, breaking the Sabbath. So according to their tradition, this man carrying his bed, his rolled up straw mat, was breaking the law. But was he breaking God's law? Notice how the man responds. Well, that guy told me to. <laughs> Kids, if you're in trouble with your parents because you broke some rules and you say, well, he told me to, that's a terrible answer. That's not a good excuse. But this man actually thought it was sufficient. Remember, he had been paralyzed for 38 years. That, the healing that he experienced was, so to speak, of biblical proportions, right? Not just because it's in the Bible, but because this kind of thing only happens when God intervenes. So this man is assuming at minimum, the guy who healed me must be a prophet sent from God, if not more. Just, just like when God commanded Joshua to tell the Israelites to march around the city of Jericho, carrying trumpets, carrying their weapons, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they weren't breaking the Sabbath. Because when you witness miracles like they did or like this man did and God tells you what to do it demands obedience so the real question here is who is this man who has healed him is he a prophet where did he get his authority the the leaders want to know they ask in verse 12 but in verse 13 the man suddenly realizes well ah uh, I guess I don't know who he is John tells us that as soon as he healed him, Jesus kind of just snuck into the background of the crowds and he never had a chance to talk to him. Jesus initially chose this place because of the crowds. He did want to make a statement. He wanted his power to stir up the city a little bit, but he didn't want them getting the wrong ideas. He didn't want them to think he was simply a faith healer there to do some cool tricks and make people's lives better. He didn't want to get them all excited into a riot and get in trouble with the Romans when they recruit him for their messianic war. So he snuck out of there. But again, in verse 14, Jesus finds the man and he reveals himself to him more fully. He indicates that this healing is so much more about spiritual wholeness than about his broken legs, about being forgiven for his sin. So Jesus brings the voice of God into his life and says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is relating the man's suffering to his sin. We don't know if that means his sin caused his suffering or if throughout his suffering he was sinning and that was preventing him from getting the help he needed. But Whatever caused it, Jesus is saying, I have healed you in order that you may walk in obedience. It wasn't his obedience that caused him or earned him the healing. It was the healing that called him to obedience. 
and that it started with just getting up and walking. And now he tells him, continue walking. Walk away from your sin. Walk away from all the things that you were seeking to find healing and hope in. Walk away from false messiahs and promises and toward God, which he did by walking to the temple where Jesus found him. Broken relationships and a broken body are terrible problems, but sin is a way worse problem. Even if you have a whole body and wonderful relationships in your life, if you're clinging to your sin, you will end up in greater suffering through eternal judgment. This man has been given a new life. And with this life in Christ, he just goes back to the temple to offer praise, to give testimony to God's work in his life. And he tells the Jewish leaders who it was that healed him. Just trying to give credit where credit is due, as we should when we're healed of something, when God works, we should tell people about it. He wants them to understand why he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. It was this Jesus guy who speaks and he creates life just like God does. And that is where the leaders start burning. This healing is showing two responses. You have this one man who was, maybe everyone thought he was condemned for his sin and that's why he was in that case. But Jesus heals him and he walks in wholeness. And you have another group of people who refuse to see, and they continue to walk in darkness. Verse 16 says, they began persecuting Jesus because of this healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus defends himself, maybe knowing their thoughts or overhearing their conversation. And this really puts him over the edge. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Basically, as the next Verse will explain, Jesus is laying down the God card, saying, look, guys, you know that God didn't really stop working on the seventh day of creation, right? Because if he stopped working, everything would cease to exist. So God has some level of continuing to work. He's just setting an example for us to follow. So if God has been holding all of creation together from the beginning until today, I need you to know that I've been his partner in that work the entire time. <laughs> He's making himself equal with God. And if he is God, he has authority over the Sabbath. He has the authority to work on the Sabbath. He has the authority to command obedience from others on the Sabbath. But we can't so easily just say that because Jesus is God, it's okay for him to break his own laws. That wouldn't cease to make him God. And, and we need him to be a perfect human, the perfect representative for us. We need to be careful here. Jesus never sinned. He didn't break God's law. If he did sin, he can't be our representative. He can't take our sins away. He can't be the sacrifice we need. So we need to understand what the Sabbath is about, what it's for. What is Jesus doing here? We'll go back to the beginning. God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The final day is when everything was whole. Everything he said then was very good. 
Adam and Eve, he created and he released them into his new creation to go work in it to his glory. They didn't do the work to create the world. He did. God did. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. Taking a day off of your normal routine, your normal work to remind yourself and the rest of the world that it is not your work that sustains the world. It is God's work that does so. Your work is not what builds your life. God creates your life. So when Jesus healed the man, he was just showing God's work creates life. That wasn't violating the Sabbath. That was exactly the fulfillment of the Sabbath, the whole point of it. When the man carried his mat on the Sabbath, he wasn't working to create life. He was showing off the work of God in his life to give him the ability to walk. Nothing could have been more restful for that man on that day than to carry that rolled up mat under his arm and go for a stroll. That is proclaiming the work of God. The Sabbath is not about ceasing activity, but ceasing a certain kind of labor, the routine of building your life to remind yourself that God is the one who has given you life. All of this is what Jesus, the Lord of wholeness, has come to accomplish. He came as God in the flesh, the perfect man in all of God's authority to give you life. First, he had to do away with your old life by dying on a cross and burying it in the tomb with him. And he rose from the dead so that by believing in him, you can rise with him to a new life forever in wholeness. Maybe not yet whole in this life, but forgiven, filled with his spirit, surrounded with a family to walk with you in obedience until you arrive completely whole in that new creation. That's the hope of Nick Vujicic. He still doesn't have arms and legs, but God healed his broken heart and by the gospel, God promises one day he will walk with new arms and legs in a new creation. And that man, with that confidence, lives in as much wholeness as someone could without arms and legs. He's learned through faithful work to drive, to swim, to type. He can type 43 words a minute. Huh? Okay. He even is now married and has kids. He lives without arms and legs, but with more rest than most of us do with arms and legs because he has determined that Christ is his rest and Christ's promises are certain and he will use the life he has been given to be a Sabbath declaration of showing off the work of Christ through him. And that's what John wants for you. In order to have that, you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. Where, what kind of wholeness are you looking for? Maybe you're looking for it in the wrong place. So many times we get so focused on, I want this healing. I need money. I need a job. I need a spouse. I need kids. I need my son back. I need my cancer gone. If only I had that, then I could be happy. And it distracts us from the wholeness that God wants to give to us. John said in verse 6 that Jesus knew of this man's suffering. 
For 38 years, he knew the man was suffering and he let him sit in it. But he had a plan for it. And he has a plan for your life as well. And the first step of walking towards your wholeness is surrendering all of your longings for wholeness to the Lord of wholeness. And turning away from all those other hopes for healing. Oftentimes in our stubbornness, we think, I'm going to clean myself up first. I'm going to work hard and, and go accomplish it. We turn to all kinds of false promises, false healers, false hopes, but none of them will take care of the root of the problem, our sin, which leads to greater suffering. So we need to see our suffering in our lives, our limitations as a gift that lead us to face the reality of our fallness so that when we are there at the end of ourselves, then we can surrender to the one who can make us whole by his death and resurrection. Find wholeness in Christ, the Lord of the new creation. Surrender your life to him. And then you put your life on display. His work in your life on display in restful obedience. You can let your testimony simply be a life of walking and rejoicing in Christ. Just as this man did. He told me to rise, pick up my life and walk. So I did. You don't need to impress anybody with great accomplishments and vast learning and knowledge. The paralyzed man was walking. What a testimony. The proof of our spiritual cure is our rising every day and walking in Christ. So walk towards his new creation, restful in his forgiveness. Trusting that all the work you do in Christ is a Sabbath work. Your daily work should look like resting in Christ, showing off to the world his work in your life, joyfully, diligently, thankfully taking up the task he's given you. But then you gather on Sunday with the saints just to stop and say, it's not my work. It's not your work. It's Christ's work among us that gives us life. So go enjoy walking on your new legs this week, confident that you have wholeness in Christ, the Lord of the new creation. Let's pray. God, show us Christ. Help us hear his words. And may we respond by the power of your spirit to rise up, take up our labors, and walk faithfully in his name that our restful obedience would proclaim the glory and the majesty and the power of our crucified and risen King, the Lord of all creation, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.